Welcome to the Arrive and Thrive podcast. We are your hosts, Tyson Day and Daniel Lenardi. Our podcast is designed to give you fresh perspectives and educational insights to make sure you thrive in every moment. Regularly, we are joined by thought leaders, life learners, and generally amazing humans who bring an approach just like us, casual, relaxed, and curious. Listeners, you know how much Dan and I love our footy. Our next guest, Jaden Post, was once an AFL player, playing for the Mighty Tigers, and now running his own business as a financial advisor and partner at Hardline Wealth. We explored Jaden's story on making a career transition as an athlete, starting his own business, and we also discover ways in which you can take control of your finances. We loop this back to making a career transition and ensuring you're doing work for the right reasons and not just a paycheck. You can follow his updates at hardlinewealth.com.au. Hope you enjoy the episode. Arrive and Thrive would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we recorded this podcast and pay our respects to their elders, leaders past, present and emerging. Cool, mate. Uh, three, two, one. Jaden Post, welcome to the Arrive and Thrive podcast. How you going, man? Good, Tice, mate. Really good to be here. Really excited to be uh, on the podcast with you and D-Boy. Ah, the pleasure is all ours. <laughs> I actually, when I nearly, when I introduced you, I nearly just whacked over my drink bottles. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, mate, you are from Hardline Wealth. Can you tell the listeners what you, it is you do and what Hardline Wealth do? Yeah, so we're financial advisors to busy business owners and high net worth families. Um, we focus predominantly on asset protection and estate planning, which is really unusual for traditional financial planners who'd like to focus on, um, you know, investment, superannuation and life insurances. Uh, we like the complexity it brings. Um, you know, we like working with other subject matter experts such as accountants, um, solicitors and all that sort of stuff to make sure our clients, you know, have usually done really, really well building wealth through their business enterprise um, to, you know, protect their capital, make sure it passes on to the next generation um, make sure they also look to, you know, grow their excess wealth as well. So um, that's a little short spiel. Um, yeah, but that's what we're about. Yeah, cool, buddy. And, mate, you, you've had quite a, an interesting career thus far. Um, and I think your, your transition story and especially, you know, what you're doing now compared to what you were doing in the past, I think is, is really cool. So would you mind sharing with, with our listeners you know, where it all began? Like, let's start from like, you know, when you're in, in senior school at high school and, and, and take us from there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess going through school, I was always pretty good with numbers, uh, really good at maths. And mum always pushed me to do uh, accounting and that sort of stuff at school. Um, but then I got a little bit taller, got a little bit lucky, I think, got into some development squads at the Western Jets. And footy was always my sort of number one passion, I guess, just growing up. Playing AFL for me was, you know, a pipe dream. I actually tell my dad this all the time, remind him of it. But when I was 15, I asked him if he thought he was good enough to play AFL and he said no. And to the old man's credit, and D-Boy will probably uh, attest to that, is that if you had to see me playing footy at 15, you wouldn't have said I made the, the rep squad for the WRFL, let alone AFL. So come on really quickly. And, um, you know, from about 17, 18, that took a lot of the focus. Uh, and, you know, fortunately enough, I got a... Uh, an under-19 role at the Western Jets. I got invited to come back as an overage player and um, put in a really good year and all the stars sort of aligned. And, uh, yeah, I got drafted to Richmond at pick 26 uh, in the 2008 draft. Um, so, yeah, really grateful. Consider myself really lucky. I, I do think I also worked pretty hard for the opportunity too. But, you know, spent four years at Richmond, played 30 games, um, 
yeah, yeah, really that experience. Uh, I just consider myself, you know, really, really lucky to have done that. Um, but as you know, footy doesn't last forever, and mine was a, a bit shorter than what I probably would have liked. Um, yeah, and after four years in 2012, I got delisted. Um, while I was at Richmond, um, the story sort of goes that, you know, as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old drafter, you start earning a little bit of money. Um, you know, you start getting match payments and all those sort of things. And I suppose I took a bit of a keen interest on, you know, what to do with it. Uh, my accountant, you know, helped me get a, a property at the time. Um, and yeah, just sort of figuring it out. And I've always been a bit of a planner naturally. Like I was the one at, um, at Richmond a few times there organizing footy trips and all these other sorts of things. So the finance and the planning sort of come together. But yeah, one night I was hanging out um, with Jack Rewalt. One of his mates was a financial planner. And uh, I was like, what's that? You know, and he sort of explained it to me, gave, his, um, gave me his uh, textbook from his diploma. And I sort of took it home and read through it all. I was like, this sounds all right. <laughs> and uh, one thing that uh, Richmond are great in a lot of areas as well, but one other thing was that they, you know, really made sure that all their players was doing, were doing something outside of footy because, you know, as I said before, footy doesn't last forever. And, um, yeah, I started, uh, I basically, no, sorry, uh, uh, in my last year at Richmond, uh, the AFL Players Associated, Association had what's called a next goal program where you could apply um, for the internship and they'd basically put you in with an employer in a field that you're interested in. And uh, you, you did pretty much, I think it was 120 hours, but I did pretty much Wednesday um, every day for that whole season, went into a practice called the firm, uh, a firm called the practice, sorry. <laughs> and um, yeah, liked what I did there and enrolled to do the diploma, um, got delisted, started my degree online um yeah and finished all that and got into the industry a little bit later so that was sort of the transition um i started working uh, in the industry for a little while um got a bit of a taste for not necessarily what financial planning it was about but also what the industry was like um probably felt like and you, you're seeing it now in the royal commission it's probably two years post royal commission but that was probably the fallout of it all, but it was a bit salesy. I didn't think that uh, all the advice was aligned in the client's best interest. And I suppose what drove me to financial planning was, you know, some of the things I'd done for myself, some of the ways I'd structure my own finances. I thought, you know, how good is this? You know, I need to be able to share this with as many other people as I can so they can be doing this sort of stuff too. Um, but that I just didn't find was a focus in the industry. Yeah, if I just met someone one day, uh, uh, Cameron Swab. He was a CEO of Richmond at 24. I never was at Richmond when he was there. But I just caught up for him uh, with him because I wanted to have a chat. And I said, oh, you know, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm sort of thinking. And he just said, oh, you know, do you have any money behind you from footy? And I said, oh, well, I'm going to sell this property I've bought. And I should have a bit of cash after that. And he goes, well, you're young. What have you got to lose? just go out and start yourself. And I said, oh, well, I've been thinking that because if you start advising for another company, it's a bit like a marriage. It's really hard and tricky to get out of at the end of the day. So um, yeah, I sort of bit the bullet, had a couple of other guys that were sort of interested. I've always been in team sports and um, advising can get pretty lonely. There's a lot of sole practitioners out there um, who take on all the stress, all the burdens, um, you know, and, and do it alone. Um, yeah, always being in a team, I also probably recognise that there's real value in having different people who think differently um, in the one room, in the one organisation, you know, can cover each other's blind spots and, 
yeah, it sort of started from there and that was in 2017. And we've just, yeah, kept at it and slowly grown um, over the, the last four years now. And yeah, I'm considering myself again to be really grateful to have taken that plunge and ended up where we are today as well. And hopefully there's still a lot more to go. Can you cast us back to the note, the, the moment of um, realizing that you, your footy career was coming to an end and, and, I suppose one thing that I find really fascinating and it probably translates to other people who, who lose their, lose their job or they get made redundant or, or um, whatever the circumstances are, they need to make a change in their, their work. Can you, can you share us through like your, some of the challenges that you faced with that and, and how you dealt with them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so as a draftee, you get a two-year contract. Um, I was fortunate enough after that two years to get another two-year extension. Um, but I remember after that third year, so the first year of the extension, I was coming I was in pre-season, early off-season, and I knew I was coming into the final year of my contract. I hadn't really gone um, particularly well um, since Hardwick had come in, and I knew it was, I was sort of up against it. Uh, so I cut an end-of-season trip short, come home, got back into the personal training that I was doing that I did pre-draft before I got drafted. And yeah, just sort of said, you know, this could be my last crack at it to have a really good year and stay on the list or, you know, the writing's really on the wall. And I had an awesome pre-season. Like I, you know, changed my body composition a fair bit, um, improved in, you know, several different aspects on the ground and also executing the game plan and stuff like that. And it all culminated in me playing round one. And um had a stinker, got dropped and didn't get back in the team until about round 17. So it was a fair while and, um, you know, you spend 16 years, uh, sorry, 16 weeks in the twos in the final year you contract, the writing's, you know, pretty much on the wall. And Richmond had some conversations with me throughout the year where, you know, we pretty much knew that was the case. Then um, uh, there was a game at North Ballarat in the, in the twos where I got thrown forward in the second half and I kicked six goals in the second half. And then they put me back in the seniors because we had a few injuries and actually started to play probably my best football um, at AFL level for the last six games. So there was an part of me that thought, oh, you know, I might have done enough and saved my ass here for the last six games. But I think also my mindset leading up to that point in time just made me really question, you know, whether AFL was something I really wanted to do. Um, you know, it sounds like a dream, but when you get there, it's, you know, it is full on. It is a 24-7 job. I always say, you know, in pre-season, you slog it out all, all day during the day. You get home, you're absolutely staffed, but you can't just switch off. You literally need to think about, oh, right, I need to cook myself a good meal. I need to make sure I keep staying hydrated. I need to make sure I get enough sleep in because tomorrow it's going to start all over again. And then also, uh, particularly with, you know, my position in the team, I was sort of in, out, in for a couple games, out again. Um, and I just got, you know, the monotony of every week, you know, what did the coach say? Do you think you'll play again? Um, I know my family didn't mean it in this way, but they're like, oh, uh, Richmond's playing in Brisbane in round 16. Do you think you'll play that? And I'm like, mum, it's December. I've got no idea. Yeah. You know, I'll just be happy to play a game again this year. So I, I guess I was in a bit of two minds. And the other thing that was really big for me was uh, the travel bug. I'd done a few um, off-season trips to Southeast Asia and stuff like that and saw my mates like, um, Dan's brother and, and a lot of those guys traveling a fair bit. And that was sort of in the back of my mind. Um, and then again, I always knew football wasn't forever. So yeah, coming up to it, I think I was pretty, um, you know, I had the mindset if it goes this way, well, if we get another contract, it doesn't mean I have to take it or, 
you know, I can just assess it on its merits. Another thing I wasn't probably keen on was, you know, just taking year after year rookie contracts or, you know, not really having that security in the role. Um, but the decision was made for me. I went in there at the end of the year and they said, you know, there isn't going to be a spot on the list for you. And um, the, one of the player development or player welfare managers sort of have a chat with you after getting delisted and all that sort of stuff. And she was really concerned something was wrong with me because I was taking it too well. Yeah, so I got delisted. I pretty much went uh, on the way home, called the coach of Altona and said, mate, I just want to get back to enjoying footy. Altona had just come off a Division One premiership. Um, so I signed back there. Um, and yeah, one of the other parts of the plan, which slowly, you know, developed into a bigger and bigger trip, but I just said, you know, I want to work, you know, labor, do whatever I have to do, um, start my online degree. So I did it through, uh, open universities, Australia, um, start that. And yeah, I want to travel in about a year's time. And then when I get back from that, I'm going to look for, you know, a job in the industry sort of thing, but hopefully I'll have something under my belt, um, or, you know, be part way through a degree. Yeah, so that was sort of that year in a bit of a nutshell, and I guess my mindset around it all. Um, but I think, you know, for me, I took it really well because I sort of had those goals in mind. They weren't very specific or anything like that. They were very vague, but I sort of knew, well, I want to work. I want to maintain that investment property I had. I'm not going to have the income from footy anymore, so I need something. Um, I'm also going to study to progress a career, but in 12 months' time, I know I'm going to go away and, you know, enjoy myself too and then look to come back in a career. So I sort of had those milestones in my head, which I think um, really helped keep, keep me driving and motivated as well. Uh, and I think that's what's probably lacking um, for some of those guys who I know that don't take, you know, getting delisted from an AFL club very, very well as well. What did you, from being in like a high-performance system, Posty, and then starting your and running your own business as a partner now and financial advisor. What sort of learnings have you taken from being at Richmond to then bringing into your, your running of your business? Yeah, I, I think I was. Well, it depends which way you look at it, but I, I really felt like I understood the game plan well. Understood what Richmond was trying to do. Um, and it was really amazing seeing the changing of the guard because my first coach was Terry Wallace when I was at Richmond and then I had Jade Rawlings for a little bit. But when Hardwick come in, it really was, to me, I felt like, you know, old school of thought versus new school of thought. Um, and Hardwick, you know, he had a game plan and he understood that, you know, if we're all just a bunch of individuals, you sort of get nowhere. But if one plus one equals three, you know, the, the, the sum of the parts is always, sorry, the, the end result is always greater than the sum of the parts sort of thing. Um, and when he introduced the game plan, it wasn't just like simple things as, you know, do this. If you're in the back line, switch it sort of thing. It's like, well, if you're in this part of the ground and this is where you are when you receive the ball and it's come from there, this is literally the way you'd need to turn to keep the ball moving. You know, it's not like um, another one for me is uh, marking was a real strength of mine. So I always used to try and run and jump at the ball and all this sort of stuff. And he kept telling me I had to find the body in the contest. And, you know, I'm like, well, what does that mean sort of thing? But it's not like, no, this is finding the body. You, you, you face your opponent, you turn your head just before you reach him, you make contact, you get a low centre of gravity. There was really nothing left to doubt in it. And I think that's been a big thing with business is that particularly when you're working in a team that can really get the process to a point where at any point in time, everyone knows what they've got to do and when. Um, it's a bit like, a you know, a bit of automation, if and sort of thing. Mm. 
And the other thing with obviously being in a high performance culture at Richmond or the AFL is just feedback. It's just the quicker that feedback loop, uh, the quicker you can get it, the, the quicker you improve, the quicker you get better results. Um, you just can't really be afraid to give feedback, to receive feedback as well. It's, it's obviously a two-way conversation all the time. And I also think the most important thing is understanding what place the feedback's coming from. Um, I don't think it's ever a place of malice. Or it shouldn't be. It's always because we want to be better as a team. And, and ultimately, like in business as well, if we do better as a team, everyone benefits from that. That's really cool to hear them examples. Yeah, yeah. There's probably a hell of a lot of other learnings you can get out of um, being in an AFL. You know, why I'm so grateful as well, because not only did I have a cool experience of, you know, playing in front of 80,000 people on the G and living out a boyhood dream, but I feel like it really set me up with some, you know, really good fundamental principles for the rest of my life. Yeah, and the reason I asked that question was because when you described your experience, you said you were, like, really lucky to have it. And, like, obviously Mm -hmm. you're lucky to play AFL, but obviously you took those learnings away, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've probably emphasised like a little bit too much at the moment because I just, I think it does play a, a huge role in a lot of things these days. And I don't want to um, be naive and think, you know, everything is just sheer hard work and all that sort of stuff. I think everything has an element of luck to it as well. Hey, Posty, I'd love to talk to you about um, the, the the notion that money plays in when making a career transition. Because I, as we were talking just before we hit record, like a lot of our guests who have made career transitions or who've made career pivots have, have been either in a position from a, a financial security position of either they've, they've received a redundancy payment. They've either saved some, some money um, to make that pivot. And I'd love to get your perspective around through the conversations that you've had with, with your clients and, and through the work that you've done your opinion around the role of money in terms of it becoming like a, a career enabler? Yeah. 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 Look, it's a really good question. And it's almost like, you know, what's the meaning of life? It's really hard <laughs> to get the bottom of it. And everyone's sort of got their own interpretation of, of what it means to me, what it means to them. But um, there's a guy in the States, his name's Naval Ravikant and he's a, an angel investor, but I've listened to a lot of his stuff lately. And I think he put it um, the best I've ever heard it. So, you know, everyone ultimately, the, the, the ultimate aim is to have, you know, financial independence. We want, you know, autonomy of choice and freedom to do what we want, when we want, all those sorts of things. And realistically, money is the only thing that can really do that. Um, but he described it, you know, there's, there's three ways to be financially independent. You, you bring your burn rate to zero. So what it costs to live is zero. You're, you're a monk. And that's, <laughs> not, that's not for everyone. Um, the other one is is that you you know you grow your asset base so that it produces a passive income where it's equal to or greater than your burn rate. So while you're sleeping, you're creating enough money to do everything that you want to do. So therefore, you've got freedom and choice to do what and when you want to do it. Um, so that's that's the second reason uh, why you can achieve financial independence. Or the third one is you just love what you do, and that's a very hard one because I think of that for me and you know sometimes I do love what I do like I've had a great last couple of weeks um, I've been away with the team in Coolangatta I've got work done on the side I've been able to spend time with family all that sort of stuff but then I know I've got a real busy two months coming up before the end of the tax year and I know there's not going to be parts of that that I do like so it's not an easy thing just to say I'll oh, do what you do what you love and you'll you know never work a day in your life it's just not that quite that simple but we like you know simple and easy stories to make sense of the world so that's why people are drawn to that 
Um, but, you know, realistically, they're probably the three things. And one other big thing about money, and I'm sure you guys have heard it too, the research has been done over and over that money doesn't buy happiness, but it can surf, certainly keep suffering at bay. So once you've got enough money to, you know, put a roof over your head, keep the lights on, all those sorts of things, every extra unit of dollar doesn't necessarily equate to an extra unit of happiness. So when people are considering all this in the context of making a career change, what they're going to just have to figure out is, you know, how much of an impact is this career change going to make to their financial independence story? You know, is it going to be something that they really, really love what they're doing? But at the end of the day, they're still going to do it because they don't have a passive income to replace their burn rate. Um, but, you know, our careers are where we spend most of our time. So I'm always someone that errs on the side of, you know, pushing more towards love what you're doing. Because um, the second thing, I suppose with that is Australia's um, superannuation system is really set up now. So by the time you get to 60, 65, you should have enough cash in super where, you know, it ticks over and is your passive income just by default. Um, so I guess a, a, a fundamental principle or, or one that's still the, the timeless principle, sorry, is, you know, you save 10, 20% of everything you earn. You know, that's one of the, the golden rules to, you know, saving enough for financial independence. Well, the government makes us save nine and a half percent already, you know, automatically. So you're sort of already halfway there just without even realizing it. So I don't know if I got to answer your question, maybe in a roundabout. Yeah. My mind's blown. That's sort of the, the way I like to position it to clients. <laughs> so that's how I sort of like to position it to clients as well. I mean, look, if you think this is going to make you happier at the end of the day and you're going to live a more fruitful life um, by making this career choice, well then how can we make it happen? What needs to happen to make it happen? How much cash do you need in the bank? as a bit of a runway to pursue it. Um, and we just reverse engineer it all from there. Have you seen it the other side where people feel obligated to keep working in a job that they don't like because of their financial commitments? Oh yeah, all the time. Like that's, that's a massive one. People um, buy mortgages that they want, or a house where they need a mortgage. Um, you know, that they, just, they need to stay in their job to sustain it. Like there's literally no other option. You know, the only way to get out of it, if they start to hate their job and, you know, want to move industries or, um, you know, for some people, I say it now, they're looking to have kids and they're like, how can we plan to have kids? And they come to me and they've got a $900,000 mortgage and the, the mother says, you know, I want to take five years off until the kids are in primary school, blah, blah, blah. How can we make it work? And I said, oh, we'll sell your house and buy a smaller one. Mm. Go, Unless your husband's going to go double his wage in, in the next 12 months or something like that. I don't have a magic bullet for you, but they're your options really to do it. So that, that's a really, really common one is that people just get themselves in a position where their, their burn rate or what they need to live, um, you know, to pay rent, put a roof over their head, keep the lights on, all that sort of stuff. Just they have to keep working in their job regardless if they love it or hate it. I think it makes you hate your job even more. It's almost like a self or a negative feedback loop. Mm. Mm. Is burn rate like the, the financial jargon? If anyone's listening that's, you know, studying financial <laughs> planning, is that a word they need to get up to speed on? You know, I only think I've heard Naval Ravikant say it, but it's sort of stuck with me. Um, so you're, you're setting the trend here in Australia with the burn rate? I'll claim it for sure. Next I'll time I it. tap my plastic at the 7-Eleven, that's all I'm going to be thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's just adding to your burn rate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's a really um, important one as well for people to really get an understanding of is, you know, what does it cost me to live a good life each year? You know, 
what, what do I actually need to spend to be happy to keep, you know, suffering at bay? Mm. Just, just on that posty, like one thing I always encourage clients who are making a transition, it's like understanding the level of risk that's involved in that transition. And it, it seems, I don't know from your perspective too, Dan, like it almost seems when, when you ask someone in a career coaching context, like, you know, how much, like what's the minimum amount you need to earn to be able to, to, to keep the lights on, to keep a roof over your head, food on the table, all that type of stuff. And it's fascinating. I often find it fascinating the amount, like the amount of people who just don't, don't necessarily know that. And when they are, when it does come to the salary negotiation piece, like they, they don't necessarily have a clear like number or figure that they go, no, that's, that's definitely not what I, I can, uh, I'll take. Do, does that make sense? Yeah, 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 it does. It, people just don't understand, you know, the cost of living these days and taking control of it because budgeting is hard and we're lazy creatures. We don't like hard work a lot of the time, particularly when it comes to things like that, where we don't, you know, really understand it intuitively. Um, but I, I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial. But I also don't like to spend a whole lot of time on budgeting as such either. I like to create frameworks where it just makes it easier for people to make decisions. And then also they can understand the impacts of those decisions really and quickly, really quickly and easy without, you know, every month sitting down and thinking, okay, how much did I spend on food? Watch my budget for next month. Um, the other thing I don't like doing as well is, is really focusing on expenses because you can only reduce your expenses so much. It's very finite. Um, but, you know, I'm going to make a, a very big assumption here, but I imagine uh, in all our individual families right now, that would all be our own biggest assets. So if I talk about my ability to go out and earn an income, if I'm going to earn on average, let's say 150K for the next 30 years of my life, well, to my family right now, I'm a $4.5 million asset because without me, that income's lost. You know, And what people don't think enough about is we're all driven by costs and expenses and driving all those downs and you know, looking to save a carton of milk or whatever it is at the groceries when it's like, well, if I read this book, you know, and I improve myself by 1% and I can create this better outcome for a client, which multiplies a number of times and I increase my income by 10 grand. Well, 10 grand over 30 years is now 300 grand. Mm. You know, so the time spent bettering myself to, you know, maximize my own human capital is far, far more valuable than worrying about the, the little minutiae, I think, in terms of driving down your burn rate. Mm. Mm, that's fascinating. I really love that. It's almost like opportunity costs that they talk about in property sometimes, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. You've always got to think, okay, well, what's my benchmark? What's opportunity cost of this decision? And um, for a lot of people, like we get um, clients that come to us and, you know, think about starting a business and, you know, we'll go through, okay, well, what's the capital required? Maybe it's not much, you know, maybe you're expected to earn an income really quickly, but it's not going to be a lot. And to do that, you know, I need to cut back on these sorts of things. And people think, oh, you know, worst case scenario, if, if I, nothing happens and I've got to close it up in two, three years, okay, well, I've spent 40, 40 grand. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, you can look at that. But it's also, you're on 150K right now. You know, so if you spend 40 grand and don't earn any income, you've also lost 150K over the next three years too. So really it's a five, it's a half a million dollar risk. Mm. You know, if this doesn't go well, so you really need to sit down and really consider this mm. you know, because, because that is the opportunity cost. And I looked at that for me to say, okay, well, where do I need to be in 12 months to say I would be equal to where I would be if I had to stay here, not just in terms of how much money I spent to start the business. 
you know, and then it gets hard to factor in a lot of other things because, you know, being the owner of your own business as well, I get a lot more autonomy and freedom and I place a higher value on that than income. Yeah. It's a good point. Like under, like understanding where your value, like where your values lie when it comes to those career choices. Cause obviously, you know, starting your own business can come with like a cost and, and also, you know, most businesses I think in Australia don't actually necessarily make a profit in the first couple of years. So mm. it, yeah, it's, it's where, and like, where's your thinking at? Is it, is it short term? Is it long term? Is it, um, and being comfortable with that, that decision around that thinking? Yeah. And, and I think first and foremost, people need to really ask themselves, you know, why are they doing it? Um, you know, I think again, Naval Ravikant said it as well, but the most important thing anyone can do is, you know, really think deeply and introspectively and work out, you know, yourself because you, you spend all day with yourself every day. And I think it's a really important thing to understand, okay, what's driving me to make these decisions or, you know, what's driving me to have these desires to start my own business. Is it because I actually hate my job? Um, is it because I value freedom and want the autonomy to make the, the choice of where I spend my time every day? Is it because I'm driven by money and I think there's a better opportunity to start a business, take on more risk because that could eventually mean more income. Um, and, and I don't think people do it enough. A lot of people think it's a bit, you know, hoo-hoo sort of stuff. But, um, you know, to, to have a someone actually go through and help you understand, you know, what are your high sort of values? What are the things that drive you? I think that's one of the most valuable exercises anyone can ever do. Now you've got Ty going. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, man, I just agree. I, I think, you know, something I'm noticing now, um, especially now that I've got a daughter and, and, um, and I'm, I feel like I'm a lot more busier, prioritising those things too. Like, you know, it sounds funny, but like I, I sent my wife a Google calendar invite the other day to have a, a family meeting and I had like agenda items that I need to, t- <laughs> to chat with her about because we just... We just like, I'm like, if we don't schedule this, like we won't have the conversation. Like it'll just be like, mm-hmm. Oh, we're too tired or we're, we're um, at the dinner and she'll say, I, I don't want to talk about this now or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's like, you've got to prioritize that stuff. Yeah. And there's a, again, I mentioned before when, um, you know, I spoke about loving what you do and realistically or in reality, you know, you might love, your job, but you're still going to hate it for 10, 20, 30% of the time. I don't think there's any job in the world where you can just love it. Or, I mean, you know, uh, Mick Fanning might love surfing, but he doesn't love getting bitten by a shark, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah. And, um, there's a, the, and I'm sure you guys have seen it as well, but the university professor when he's in front of the class and he just a nice, simple message, bubbles or rocks going into the jar. You know, if you put all the sand in first and then the smaller rocks and then the big ones at the end, you usually can't fit them in. But I think you really need to focus on the big rocks first. Make sure they're the first things that go into your calendar. And it's really easy to identify what those big rocks are when you've, you know, been able to go through your values and can understand, you know, what the priority is um, for you. Mm. So, yeah, I, I use that all the time. So it's a nice, simple, easy one for them to understand. And <laughs> I usually get a message saying, I've gone home, thought about what you said, and I've booked in a date night with a wife. I'm actually going to drive up to the country to see mum and dad too. I haven't seen them for a while. And it's nice to hear that sort of stuff because, you know, we spent half an hour of a financial advice meeting talk about, you know, what's your big, big the big rocks in your life. Mm-hmm. Mate, can- Percy, can you give our listeners some practical tips around, you know, some of these decisions when it comes to, to finance? Like, 
I think for a lot of us, um, you know, the, the great Australian dream of owning a house and, and all that type of stuff is, is constantly drummed into us um, from all angles. And I, I think sometimes that may not necessarily be the, sa- the case for everyone, but I think universally all of us w- would love to be able to save a little bit more cash or make our money work for us um, to be able to do those things that we really want to do when we want to. Um, have you got a couple of like basic tips that, that our listeners can, can hold on to and then um, yeah, get, get them on their merry way? Well, I've probably given it away already, but you know, just really understanding first, you know, what, what are the things that drive you? Because I said, you know, freedom, autonomy, all those sorts of things, usually home ownership for a lot of us doesn't give us that, you know, as I said, you know, you've got to take on a big mortgage. It means you've got to have a job that pays a good income to be able to pay down that mortgage. Um, you know, you might not be able to travel as much, all those sorts of things. So I think the first thing is, really really understanding yourself and there's a lot of people out there that can help you do it you know imagine Ty, you might have some tools that might help people elicit you know what their values are and you know in what order preference they are um i think that's the first and foremost one and i think the second one is the goals if you don't know why you're doing something then it's really really hard to stick to it um we've got this thing called Oh, I used to talk about it every day. It's instant gratification, basically. But, you know, we prefer rewards that are immediate rather than in the future because, you know, we're products of evolution. Uh, it's been going on for millions and millions of years. And society has changed significantly in the last, you know, 200, 2,000 years sort of thing. But it hasn't really undone that, that evolution over time. So... As an example, if I'm in the savannah, I'm a caveman and I found a really unripe banana, but I know in a week's time, it's going to be a bit riper, a bit sweeter, a bit softer and nicer to eat. I don't care. I'm just going to eat it now because my future is really uncertain. Survival is not guaranteed for me. I might be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger today. So I'm just going to eat the banana now. And that's the way our brains think. No, it's the same when you see it in lots of um, domains, you know, the way people manage their time, you know, really I should be doing... Uh, my assignment today even though it's due in 30 days but you know it's it's pretty hard to do it today netflix is a lot easier so i'm just going to keep deferring it um i walk through the checkout at coles and there's the mars bar there for a dollar they're always on special these days oh, i should just wait for dinner i'm not even that hungry no it's a dollar stuff but i'm going to eat it now <laughs> um, but it's the same with money and those trade-offs are a lot harder to make if you don't know actually what you're trading off against so if I don't know specifically, look, I want to buy a house, I want to buy a million dollar property, I don't have banker mum and dad that can guarantee me, I need a $200,000 deposit because I don't want to pay LMI and I want to do it in five years. I should be able to break that down and say, well, this is what I need to save every month. And if I do this, if I buy that, it's taking away from that goal. Okay, then for me, that trade off in my mind is quite clear. It's like, well, have this don't have that whereas if i don't have that goal it's like have this or i just have a little bit less money next tomorrow you know mm-hmm. that's all it really is um so the, the goals is is really important and i think the other the biggest thing i could say is having it automated once you've got your goals once you know what they are um put in a process to automate it so things just happen by default where you don't have to do it yourself you can't get in your own way um savings just happen automatically um I like to use direct debits as well so I can understand, okay, on an average month, how much am I going to have coming out of this bank account? Make sure that's always got enough in. And it's also our emergency funds, enough money in there for like one month, you get heaps of bills coming at once and you get a big whack. Well, I know there's enough to fund it, but over the course of a year, it'll average out. But 
I, I can't remember the last time I actually physically paid a bill. I think they're all direct debited. Um, and then we even pay ourselves just a weekly allowance every week to live because all the savings and everything else is just automated out, out of those accounts. So um, I probably only check our accounts like once a month. Um, we've got a guilt-free account that we use for our everyday spending. But yeah, it, it's all sort of automated at the back of my mind. And I try and focus on, as I said before, you know, what can I do to grow my income? What can I do to, you know, create more value to the people I serve? Because mm, when you look at it, you've blended it together because you obviously know all these frameworks. So you're doing all those little things to allow yourself to free up to read a book instead of worrying about the bills when... Yeah, and then you're, you're, you're getting the double whammy, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, it's all opportunity costs. I could sit there and say, okay, yeah, well, my Telstra bill is 160 bucks. That's right. I'll go into Telstra now and pay it. Or do I pay it by BPAY or direct debit? Is it card fees? Just all these little decisions I don't want to have to make or shouldn't really be making. Just automate it and forget about it. Focus on, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be reading your book either. It can be, um, I get an extra, an hour a week to spend time with my daughter because I'm not, doing stuff that can just be automated and it's mm. so low, so low value as well. Mm. Can you give our listeners a couple of career tips that you've experienced from your own career? Cause when you told us to talk us through your story, it sounded a little bit seamless. Like you were just, you knew what you were doing and you worked it all out. But if you think back, what are some of the, what are maybe the three tips you'd give someone else that's, you know, in that position when they're leaving school or, moving out of a job into a new job yeah i think i also look back at my story in hindsight and again it's easy to to create that narrative just to say it was all seamless this was my mode of thinking but i'm sure uh, a lot of the time there was a lot of doubt in my mind over what i was doing and you know am i making the right decision am i doing the right things um and you're always going to have that doubt and i think you know you really learn it through your own experiences um, I'm not sure I'm the best person to give career advice to uh, or from, but uh, I think just having some sort of plan again in place and knowing roughly where you want to be. And I give, guess also, you know, the, the nature of today's society as well, it's really fluid. You know, you're probably going to change your career three or four times in our lifetime. You know, the, the days of our grandparents being in one job, let alone one industry for their whole life is gone. Um, you've just got to be really adaptable and I think open to change. Um, and you know, it's been so important for us for every species on earth since the dawn of time to be able to adapt and survive. But, you know, for, for our species now in the world we live in, it's, it's even more crucial to be able to do it, um, quicker and quicker and quicker. So I, I think the key should to be, you know, learning fundamentals, learning good skills as well. They're going to be, um, you know, can cross into different disciplines. So as I said, you know, being adaptable, being able to work in teams, um, understanding human behaviour, I think is a big one in the way we think and act. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that's very helpful because it's obviously very broad, but mm. um, yeah, I think having a plan and having some understanding of, okay, I don't, I don't want to just get a job in this industry, blah, 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 but this is the point in the industry I want to get to. You know, I want to be the CEO, CEO of an ASX 200 listed company or I don't want to manage people and I just want to be a really, really good local accountant that does this and maybe earns his 150 and drives his HSV club sport or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just said I wanted to ask you one more question about um, <clears throat> some of the conversations I've had with you before have around some of the mentors you've had throughout your career. 
Can you talk to us a little bit about how important the mentoring relationship has been for you? And do you mentor anyone now? Yeah, again, this is, you know, looking back, it's easy to create that narrative for me, but it just sort of happened by chance and luck. Um, like I mentioned, Cameron Schwab, you know, he only came to me and I've spoken to him a couple of times, but just his advice at that time was really poignant. I was just at that point in time, it's really luck. I was at the point in time where I had the resources, he asked the question and basically pushed me in that direction. Um, but one other thing, you know, the days of really doing an apprenticeship, particularly in service-based industries as well is gone. You sort of do your degree, get all this um, knowledge, which isn't always contextual, and you're expected to go, you know, into a big four accounting firm straight away and be able to, to go. The, the days of having someone there looking over your shoulder, learning through experience and all that sort of stuff are, are really gone. And, you know, we, we all we don't know what we don't know. Having someone else that's been there, done that, learned the hard way and can transfer some of those experience and hardships to accelerate your path is huge. Um, and just by chance, again, through the licensee we chose to partner with where we set up the business, they're really pioneers um, in the path we've taken. And they've got a lot of guys in there who have got a few more grey hairs than us. They've done it before. They've learned some hard lessons. and they've been awesome mentors to us um you know just yeah i can't really thank those guys hard enough i won't go into specifically who they are because to you guys it'd just be irrelevant mm. um you know but uh, to give you an example look when we first got introduced to a really who would have been our biggest client at the time we did things a certain way and they didn't go ahead with our proposal or what we we're doing and we called them up and they said oh don't do this you should have done it this way you know you've got to um you know, do better to position the fees and all this sort of stuff with these types of clients. And, you know, it was one or two quick things, but the next time we had another opportunity like that, we did it that way and the client signed on, you know, and we never would have done that if we didn't have those mentors who had been there and done it before to ask those questions too. Um, I guess the other thing going back to footies, uh, when I first walked into Richmond, the first guy I looked at when I basically walked into the club was Richo. <laughs> you know, Matt Richardson, it was like, it was unbelievable. It was like four weeks ago, I was betting on you to win the Brownlow. Now I'm in the locker room sharing a bloody club room with you sort of thing. It was incredible. Um, but, you know, even him and I learned the hard way sometimes. There was this one game I played in Sydney um, against the Swans and just had a stink and got dropped and played on uh, Lewis Roberts Thompson. And I think LRT, depending on who you ask, you know, he might have copped a bit of slack at times. You know, he wasn't really rated, I think, sometimes out of the Sydney Football Club. But I know he's very rated highly internally. Um, but in our review of that game that week, uh, I was sitting in there with the forwards and Troy Simmons said to me, he goes, you know, Poster, you played on Lewis Roberts Thompson. I said, yeah. He goes, well, did you think to ask anyone that's played on him before how he plays and what he does and all this sort of stuff? I said, oh, no, no, I didn't. So then he goes, well, Richo reckons he's one of the best defenders he's played on. So I'm sure he would have had some bloody tips on you, you know. I probably had four possessions. <laughs> he goes, maybe we could have got you to six. You know, if you had to just ask the question sort of thing. But, you know, Richo would have played against LRT maybe a dozen times before. I'm sure there was something he could have given me to get me that 1% better sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's just hugely important. I think just to be able to cover your blind spots and accelerate your learning. And that's the other thing I like about books is you can condense, you know, some of the wisest people on earth, their, their entire career and their entire learnings into a five, six hour read maybe. Like it's just an incredible concept, I think. That's a good segue, Posty. We, something we ask all of our guests, mate, is the, the book that changed their life or the documentary that changed their life. Um, we've heard, you know, a real mixed bag. Um, you know, a couple of guests have said Harry Potter. 
a couple of guests have said, um, you know, something that's more aligned with probably your field, Scott Papes, um, the Barefoot Investor. You know, we've heard it all, but what are a couple of books or one book, if you can narrow it down, that, you know, you swear by? Yeah, I, I talk about this book, I think, a fair bit. Um, firstly, uh, my favourite book is probably Sapiens. Um, oh, I just think that's an, uh, an awesome book for the content it's got. I found it a really entertaining read as well as a very um, thought-provoking. And, you know, I've been ignorant of a lot of areas such as politics and all those sorts of things. I've never really wanted to know too much about it, but that book was able to introduce it to me in a way where I didn't feel dumb and I was actually engaged in the content too. Um, so that's probably my most gifted book, but the one I talk about the most and I think it's had the biggest impact on me is um, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, so Daniel Kahneman wrote that book. He won a Nobel Prize for his work in economics um, for a lot of the research he did uh, and a lot of the concepts he speaks about in the book. But uh, it just basically explains um, how we're designed and, you know, some of the biases and heuristics we, and shortcuts we use to make decisions, which are, are pretty bloody faulty a lot of the time. And it just sort of opened my eyes up um, because I guess in my industry as well, I'm, I'm very confident and comfortable in, in the finance part of things. Like, uh, you know, where to invest money, um, you know, strategies around superannuation, debt, uh, business structuring, all that sort of stuff. I don't find that too complex. And if I do, I know where to go to get the answers anyway. I think the hardest part for us in our role as a, as a lead advisor is the client, the personalities, um, their fears, all those sorts of things, and just understanding their, their behaviour. And I've had this come up, you know, many, many times before. It's like I, I show someone something and present it to them, present them with modelling and all this sort of stuff and show by doing this, you're going to be $130,000 better off by the time you retire, as an example. But then they didn't go ahead with the advice. <laughs> Just to me, it doesn't make sense. And it's obviously there's something there. They're fearful of something. They, they don't get what I'm actually talking about or whatever it is. I think that's just our biggest roadblock and thinking fast and slow helped me understand the way we think uh, a lot better. And then also helped me understand myself a lot better and the way I think and the way I um, make mistakes in decision-making too. It's, um, it's, a, it's a pretty dense read. Um, but it's a very, very valuable read as well. Love it. I'll have to add that to the audible list, mate. <laughs> I, I must admit, I've got to probably put my hand up here and say, I've never actually gotten through the whole book yet. <laughs> I've gone back to it three times and in bits and pieces to reread parts of it as well that I really, really like, but I don't think I've ever gotten through it um, front to back in one go. And I'm sure there's a part in there I haven't read yet, but um there's actually some other guys that do a really good podcast. It's called What You Will Learn, where they sort of summarise um, books. Um, and I've listened to their summary of Thinking Fast and Slow probably about half a dozen times, I reckon. And it's over two parts. So I feel like I know it intimately, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, mate. Any other thoughts or remarks from yourself, Danny? Um, no, nah, I think I'm all good. I'm just soaking it all up. Mm. Well, Posty, it's been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you tonight, mate. And, and thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your insights. How can people get in touch with your business and, and see your updates? Pretty slack on social media and all that sort of stuff. The best place to get in contact with us would just be through the website and the, the contact us now section. I don't have a LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. Um, so yeah, th that would be the best way to get in contact with us and yeah, just to see what we do. Uh, 
free. We, we, I suppose one good thing we can offer is we run uh, what's called a discovery meeting with all our clients where we do work through, you know, what a good life looks like for them in 10 years. Um, we use uh, live, love, learn and legacy as our prompts to help people, you know, ask more questions of themselves. So, you know, live, how do you want to be living your life? Love, who are the people you want to spend your time with? Learn what are the things you want to do? What's your purpose? Do you want an MBA? Do you want to grow a business? Do you want to move to another country uh, and learn another language or culture? And then legacy is the last one, which is, you know, what's it all going to mean at the end of the day? Um, so that can really help people understand themselves. But then we always tie it back here. Okay, well, how can you start to achieve this really good ideal lifestyle using financial planning? Nice, bro. Nice. Bit of a teaser. If, if you don't mind me asking, why no socials? Because I remember when there was a day, you know, in a past life where we were connected on LinkedIn and and um, and now I tried searching you and I couldn't find you. Yeah. Do you mind sharing? I wanted to ask that too because I looked for you today and I'm like, where's Posty gone? <laughs> yeah, oh, no, I just found it, uh, to be honest, too much of a distraction for me. Um, I wanted to focus on, you know, the relationships and in the room with the people I'm in. Um, and also, I suppose my role within the business isn't so much on BD. So it allows me more just to focus on the people I'm currently serving. Um, yeah, and then also no Facebook, no Instagram means I can't get sucked into it and lose time, you know, taking my attention away from where it should be, which is, you know, my daughter and other things and, and books and all that sort of stuff. So I can't, can't go on about not spending too much time on, you know, worrying about where my money goes. And then just spend that time saved on Facebook and Instagram. I thought that would have been a bit of a, a cop out. I love how methodical you are. And for our listeners, what is the website for Hardline Wealth? Yeah, just hardlinewealth.com.au. Awesome. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome, mate. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. No, great to be here. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And um, we were meant to record this about four weeks ago. I was a no-show. I'm <laughs> terribly embarrassed about it still. I'll never let it down. I'll never let myself down for that. So sorry, guys, that we had to, um, yeah, I had to do that to you guys. So I'm glad we got it out of the way in the end. Don't worry. Ty did a podcast last week and he couldn't even do it. He had to drop out because of his internet down the peninsula. (laughs) (laughs) I'm making sure a little bit better. We're all humans here. I don't, we're we're still looking for bananas. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Arrive and Thrive podcast, please let us know by sharing it with a connection and leaving a review. We hope that through this podcast, even more people can design a career and life that they love and are proud of. See you soon.